Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. All right, we have your Bibles. Go and turn to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be verses 11 through 24 this morning. Uh, a loveless faith is fake. That's kind of the idea that we're going to pursue uh, this morning. If your kids are like mine, parents, if your kids are like mine, kids are really good at creating messes, right? They, it doesn't, listen, in our house, I'm sure it's the same as your house, you pick things up, you go into the room, you come back in the room, you just cleaned, and parents, what happened to that room? Chaos, again. And you're like, how did, can you? Listen, we have these bookshelves in our home. And we, so the kids have these bookshelves in their rooms. We have this one in the living room. It's got books on it, of course. And you walk in, and these bookshelves are these books are thrown off the bookshelves. It's like pulling tissue out of a tissue box. Just <laughs> and here's the thing: I don't think they're even reading them or looking at them. I think just for fun, they're like frisbees, and they're going everywhere. And parents, you know what the next step is right. Time to clean up, and part of the cleaning up is the declutter of stuff. And when you declutter and you clean up, sometimes you find things you didn't know you had. There's this book. It's called I'll Love You Forever. I can see all the moms there going, oh, I love that book, right? You, some of you may have read this book. Some of you may be like, I don't know what this book is. Many of you have probably cried while reading this book. And though this book is sweet, I want to put on the record, it's weird, right? And I'm, I'm going to get in there really quick, okay? You're going to find out what I'm talking about, right? Here we go. So I'm actually going to read to you all. Y'all know it's be story time today, but it is. So this book, I Love You Forever, starts off, this mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And you're probably thinking, Chad, that's not weird. Just wait. The baby grew and he grew and he grew until he was two years old he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelf. Yep. Pulled all the food out of the refrigerator, and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes the mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. We've all been there. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, and she crawled around the floor, looked over his bed, and if he was really, really asleep, he picked him up, and he rocked him back and forth, back and forth, singing, I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as you love, or long as I'm living, my baby, you'll you'll be. We've all been there, right? We are during the day. Our kids are just holy tears, right? And then at night, you look in the room. You're like, oh, it's because they're sleeping. They're quiet, <laughs> right? We've all been there. This little boy grew and he grew and he grew until he was nine years old. He never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. If you have boy, that's true. When his grandma came to visit, he said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime when he was asleep, the mother quietly opens the door. She crawled across the floor and she looked over that side of the bed. If he was really, really asleep, he, she'd pick up that nine-year-old boy and she'd rock him back and forth, back and forth, singing, I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Then the boy grew and he grew and he grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends, he wore strange clothes, he listened to strange music. Sometime his mother thought that she was in a zoo. But at nighttime when that teenager sleep, this mother 
would open his door. She'd cross across. She'd crawl across. See, this is where it gets weird, all right? She'd crawl across the floor. She'd peek over his bed, and if he was really asleep, she'd pick up that great big boy and rock him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, while singing, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Then this happens. The teenager grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew until he was a grown-up man. When he left home, which makes sense, he got a house across town. Sometimes on those dark nights, the mother got into her car, and she drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house are out, what if the police drive by? <laughs> she opens his bedroom and she crawled across the floor. She looked over his bed like a burglar, apparently. And if that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up. How is what I want to know. And rocked him back and forth, back and forth while singing, I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Listen, I will let you know, if that's you, I don't understand you, but that is weird all right imagine you y'all all know my mama right she she's tiny i'll pay for that later right How, just come here you know it's a love that i don't get it's this and listen i'm a dad and i can be very sentimental at kind of times and don't and, and i know you're probably thinking listen i love my kids and i will do anything for them this is describing an unwavering, unfailing love that you just can't describe. When we get to 1 John, John, the Apostle John, he's the one who authored this, this, this letter. And he's, this is not young man John, by the way. This is old man John, wise man John, rocking chair John. He writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. When he writes this letter, the same theme that we see in the Gospel of John, the same theme he writes. He writes about this, this idea of love, this idea of this intangible love love what it is what it looks like what love really should be and as we read this text this morning i want you to remember that phrase that i mentioned earlier that a loveless faith is fake if there is not love present within your faith then it's fake and what love are we talking about love for god love for people yes yes so 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to 24, it says this, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. We will, we will reassure our hearts before him when our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask for in him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, 
the, to, and love one another as he's commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remain in him, and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us is from the spirit he has given us. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray as we get ready to just dive into your word. I pray the truth of your word just pierces our hearts. Lord, may the distractions that we may have just, uh, just be set to the side. Lord, that we can focus on you and what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, it's Christ and we pray. Amen. So this morning, if you were to break down this text, you break it down in three different ways. Uh, in verses 11 through 15, we're going to see a loveless action. Then in 16 through 18, we'll see love applied. And in 19 through 24, love assured. One more time, 11 through 15, uh, loveless action. 16 through 18, love applied. And then 19 through 24, love assured. When we get to uh, this point where John's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, there is a group of people who actually have uh, splintered off of the church, leaving John and the church behind. Because they think they found this new variant of Christianity, which there isn't one. There's only one. But they think they found this new version of Christianity that is void of Christ becoming and living in the flesh. And just like modern day, anytime a new teaching or a new gospel, if you want to call it that, comes out, people tend to drift towards these new ideas. No different here. There is this teaching going around that Jesus never came and lived in the flesh and people are following this idea in groves and John when he addresses them he's going to address the church dress these people living and with this idea of loveless action but before he does he actually reminds them of the love they should have in verse 11 he says this for this is the message you have heard from the beginning we should love one another this is not a new idea. John is everything John is going to say. John has heard from Jesus. As a matter of fact, in John chapter thirteen, the Gospel of John, he hears Jesus. He says, "He says that you know that you belong to Him when you love one another." It's this theme that's going to run through the Gospel of John in our letter today in First John. It's this mark of spiritual transformation when the brotherhood and sisterhood of believers set aside all their differences for the sake of the who we have in common. It's this idea of people who are bound together by a broken body and the blood of Jesus who have placed their hope in Christ, who have experienced resurrection life because of Jesus' own resurrection. It's the idea of us being bound together and loving one another. And even though in this letter, John does primarily talk to the brothers and sisters in Christ about love, we shouldn't forget about the secondary part of that we ought to still love outside of that, even our people that we wish were our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are, we, we all know, there are, this is an unbelieving world. There are people in this world who are lost. They are unbelievers. And it's our job as believers, as Christians, to step into their world and offer them the hope of Jesus. This is what we're called to do. So as John is writing this letter, and he's addressing more so the people of the church, the people who are following Christ. It is our job to also reach out to those around us. We talk about what it is for us to follow Christ. It's important for us to know that our message needs to stay consistent. 
when we talk about our message and the love command, knowing that you can't really separate the love command from the gospel. This idea of loving your brother and sister and loving God, they're, they're, they're of the same. They're not inseparable. You don't separate one from the other. They're both under one command. But if your version of Christianity or my version of Christianity is loveless, then it's not good news. And it's not good news and it's not the gospel. Good news goes into dark places and offers up hope in exchange. And this is what we've been called to as believers, to walk with our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be going through dark valleys, dark things in our life. We, we walk into these places with them and ask them, how can I be incarnational for you? And then the people who are non-believers that we wish would were part of the family of God. We are to walk with them as well and say, and often the hope of Christ while meeting whatever need that needs to be met. John is reminding them first, here is the love that you ought to have for one another. This is the love that distinguishes us from every other group. It's the love that we have that is built and found upon the person of Jesus. And then he gets into verse 12. He says this, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder Cain? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. I'm not sure your history of the Bible. We get to Cain and Abel pretty quick. By Genesis chapter 4, nudity and snakes have ruined and broken everything. Right? We get to Genesis chapter 4, Cain has murdered Abel. Cain's, whose deeds were evil, Abel, whose deeds were righteous, Cain gets mad at Abel. Sin has now entered the world because of the fall, and Cain murders Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we find the Lord, and he says this, and it's served as a warning. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at the door. Cain's actions were evil because he belonged to the evil one. The first person born of the world, we know Adam and Eve were created. The first person born of the world is a counterpart to the message of Jesus. The first person born in the world where God says this is life, murdered. It's a description of the invasion of sin and the consequence of the fall. God says life in our broken evil hearts say death. Cain, the first fruits of Eve's womb, murdered his brother. And I don't know how much you know of the story, but Abel offers up uh, a blood sacrifice, and Cain, he offers up like a cantaloupe or a pear or something, some kind of vegetation. And we don't know why, but for some reason, Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable and it was faithless, which leads us to know that faithless sacrifice is not really sacrifice it should cost something there should be faith involved somewhere Cain is the only Old Testament figure mentioned in first John and this feels intentional on on behalf of John as he writes this letter and I want you to think about this how many of us have looked at the story of Cain and and thought to ourselves I don't know what Cain did wrong outside the murder thing like we know that's wrong when it comes to this to their sacrifice what was wrong with the gourd that he offered up to God or whatever it is that it was that he offered up to the Lord? What was wrong with it? Can you imagine being in the church of Ephesus and people are leaving? 
Not like ones or twos. It's, it's a lot of people are, are leaving. And if you've been in part of a church for any length of time, you may have seen this, where it's just like a mass exodus of people leaving. And what goes through your mind? Questions. What is going on? Why are people leaving? What have they done? Have they broken something? We start asking these questions. Our minds start to spiral. What kind of sin do they commit? Are they being excommunicated? These people, they are probably asking the same questions. Where are they going? The people in the know, they say, hey, this is what they're following, trying to keep things straight. But John, he writes this letter, and he's saying, listen, these people leaving, John associates their behavior with Cain. And these people are probably thinking when they read this letter, why is John associating these people's behavior with Cain? He associates their behavior with Cain because he wants them to know how much of a division that they have caused through all of this. Not only are they leaving because they think they found this new variant of Christianity that was void of Christ's coming in the flesh there was also the idea that they were without sin which is always a problem if you believe that you were without sin that makes you a liar and if you have a problem with me saying that i didn't say it god did right but what is the great sin of cain what was wrong with his sacrifice when he came to god with his tomato or whatever what if part his sin was that he thought he could do this in his own strength. Or maybe it was part of he thought that this would not affect him negatively whatsoever at all. He saw no fault in his offering up a sacrifice that needed no faith. And Cain is not, he's not just a negative example of, of for us to fall, but he's the exact opposite of what every believing person should be because our sacrifices should cost us something. If you have a sacrifice that doesn't cost you anything, then by definition, it's not a sacrifice. We talk about the, the sacrifice we offer up, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm talking about how we live our life. There are things that we absolutely have to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, but if it doesn't cost us anything, there's no faith in that. So may our sacrifices cost us something. And in verse 13, John says this, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Again, not a new teaching. John, John chapter 15 says this. Don't be surprised. This is Jesus talking. Don't be surprised the world hates you. It hated me first. I want to think of this a little differently uh, this morning. I want us to think about, so when you think about the global Christians, Chris, Christians across the global scale, right? We are all not the same, right? Globally. We are not the same as far as how we live, the things that we do, because wherever it is, Christians, that you are a part of, you live your life according to the area around you. I want you to think of your own experiences, right? Here in Harvest, Alabama, or wherever it is you're from, Tennessee, Texas, Georgia, Louisiana, oof, right? I've driven through there. Or even or whatever, or just across America in general, our, our nation, okay? It doesn't, our lives don't look very different as far as our day-to-day -day goes, right? We get up. We have our morning routines. We fight our kids to get dressed for school. Did you brush your teeth? Yes, I did. No, they didn't. Their breath reeks. Like, we've all been there, okay? My kids do it all the time. Did you brush your teeth? 
No, you didn't. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, you did not brush your teeth, right? Nothing is different. But what I want to think about it is this. What is different is, is not what we're doing, but it's how we're living. We, as a people who are followers of Christ, our home is not here. We just sang this a few minutes ago. Our home and our citizenship is in heaven. So therefore, we live as citizens of heaven, right? We fulfill our duties as citizens here, but our citizenship is not here. It's of heaven, right? Basically, Christians, we are to be or we're in the flesh, but we're not to live according to the flesh. Our, we live as citizens of heaven. We live as agents of the kingdom of God. Christians, if we stick to the theme that John is talking about, Christians love all despite how others may view us, right? We still love despite of that. It's this idea of counterculture. We, I think sometimes we use this word often too many times. This idea of culture, of counterculture, and I usually try to stay away from it unless we're talking about ice cream. All bets are off, right? Let's go. But counterculture, and when you say counterculture, it's this idea that we look at our culture and we tweak things here and there, or we have this idea of being counterculture, which means we've got to stand up for certain things, and yes, there's times we absolutely have to do that. But I want to think of this counterculture in a little bit different light this morning because I think it, it helps put things in perspective for us. I want you to think of the people you come in contact with that are, have opposite views, whatever that looks like for you, right? Whether it's political, ideologies, things going on at work, whatever it is. We all have people that we have conversations with that we do not see eye to eye on. There are people in which we come in contact with that we know are not believers in the person of Jesus. But what I challenge us today is that through these things and how we have conversations, how we live uh, with people in mind, that we must be careful with our words and our actions because we want to be a countercultural people. Give careful thought to our words because what we say and how we act in a world that is far from Jesus makes a statement about Jesus. So we're inter interacting with people, how you and I handle these things, and they know we're believing it makes a statement about Jesus. Jesus, because anytime we speak to those who believe in opposition to the good news, we cannot resonate, our tone cannot resonate with any other group. Our tone must resonate with Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. That's our speech, that's our action, that's everything that we do resonates in the tone of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. That's what it means to be countercultural. Not the look at things where I'm going to tweak this and here. No, I am living with the tone of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected, which affects everything that I do. And John gives us that warning. But if you choose to live that way, which we must, the world probably won't like you as much because you're going against the grain. We think about our words. We think about our actions. Verse 14, he says this, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. The one who does not love remains in death. And you're probably thinking, listen, bro, but I was baptized. If you do not love, you remain in death. Dude, I was catechized. Well, if you do not love, you remain in death. But I'm here at church every single Sunday or most Sundays. Listen, if you, not, if you do not love, 
you remain in death. Them's the rules, kids. I don't make it up. It's there. John 5, 24 echoes this same phrase. Why? Because a child of God loves. The child of God loves God, loves the things of God, loves the people of God, loves the people we wish were the people of God. And on the flip side of that, everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is Cain. A loveless faith is a red flag. It signals that eternal life may be absent. For John, not loving means to hate. There's no middle ground for John. You either actively love or you actively hate. And this isn't unfamiliar to John. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, and this is Jesus talking. So John is just quoting Jesus, okay? And Jesus says that if you refer to your brother or sister and you call them, and Jesus uses this Aramaic term, maraca, which means fool, you've committed murder in your minds and thoughts. So John is taking what Jesus taught, and he's just repeating it. So you have a problem with what I'm saying. You have a problem with John saying, well, Jesus is the one who said it, right? You either actively love or you actively hate. When John's writing this letter, he's wanting to point to them that there is loveless action. And if this is you, he's associating you with Cain. Which is not good, by the way. But then John takes this idea of loveless action and he moves us into love applied. Or maybe a better term for this would have been love in action. Verse 16 says this. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Jesus' death is not only the source of our forgiveness of sins. This is also the gauge in which we as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the gauge in which we should measure our own love for others. The fact that Jesus laid down his life. How do we know love? Because of Jesus. How do we show love? Because of Jesus. Love looks like Jesus. It's not a knockoff. It's not a cheap imitation. Listen, many of y'all know that, that my big thing is basketball, always has been. And plug real quick, man, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, basketball, see you there. I know some of you are probably thinking, listen, I'm too old to play. No, you're not. Listen, they make compression sleeves for anything now. Google it. Compression, comp- compression sleeves for your knees, got them. Com- they, listen, they got like ankle spanks for your ankles if you got bad ankles. You are ready to go, my man, right? So we'll see you Saturday at 10. Back to the action. So Connor's basketball season just wrapped up. And during the season, I started looking at basketball gear. You think basketball is cheap until you start looking at gear. Shoes, all these things. And before you know it, my social media timelines were filled with basketball equipment. They've got some weird things out there now, guys. They got this basketball that you that actually can teach you to dribble better. You set up on your iPad, your TV, computer, whatever, and you dribble, and it tells you how good or bad and helps you with, fund, with fundamentals of dribbling, right? They have inserts that can make you jump higher, which nowadays for me is only a couple of inches. But then I found this. They have what's called a silent basketball. Y'all seen these? I thought, what a great idea. We have this rule in our house, don't dribble basketball in the house. And I'm going to be honest, Connor, he does a fairly good job of following that instructions. Me, on the other hand, I dribble all the time. Connor got this light-up basketball for Christmas from his grandparents. And it's really cool. And so anytime, 
And it's not even the house. If I see a basketball, I only have to pick it up, dribble it, or shoot it. That's just the rule. So I see it, I start dribbling the house. And it, Sarah loves the noise, by the way. Doom, 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 doom. So I came across a silent basketball. And I thought, what a great idea. So I ordered one. The term I would use on how I would treat it is hoodwinked. I gotta show it to you. I'm not walking off stage, I promise. I brought it over here. This is the silent basketball, right? I should not be able to do this, by the way. <laughs> That's not how a basketball bounces, kids. Came in, came in pre-bitten. I don't know if that was extra or if I got a discount. It looks like something you got out of a claw machine in an arcade. When it came in and I opened it and I was like, this it? What? You got to like, sorry, Brian. And, ooh, that's not what a basketball is supposed to do. Thought I was about to roll off the stage. I might, like, we'll see you. It may look like a basketball, sort of. Doesn't feel like one. Doesn't bounce like one. Because it's not a basketball. You can't play a game with that. You could try, but it ain't going to work. It's a cheap knockoff. It's a cheap imitation. The sacrifice, the sacrificial death of Christ is the foundation of all that we believe. It's the foundation of all that we believe about Christian service. And to understand it, we look back at what John says in John chapter 1. Listen, John, remember, he's talking to a people who say that Jesus was not here in the flesh. And John says, listen, we saw him. We observed him intently. Dude, he is real. John is talking to a group of people who are saying Jesus is not real, that Jesus was not man. Listen, if we remove God from becoming man, Christianity crashes and burns, and you and I are wasting our time. To deny that Jesus came in the flesh is anti-Messiah. When you get to this verse, your Bible might say the word ought or should. You should lay down your life or you ought to lay down your life. This word here means different for us than it did to them. When you see the term you should do this or you ought to do that, we take that as a recommendation that we really don't have to do, right? And some of us have a harder time accepting recommendations than other people. But if someone came to you and said, hey, you should do this or you ought to do this, we might go, no, I'm good. When John writes this, he, he's using the term is to, the believer in Jesus is to lay down their life for their brothers and sisters. This carries a tone of obligation that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And to not lay down our life for our brothers and sisters is the same message as the people in Ephesus who are anti-Messiah. It was void of Christ in the flesh to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters as anti-Messiah, and we are functioning as anti-Christ. Listen, I'm not asking you to say what you believe. I'm asking you, how do you live what you believe? The Bible, when we look at the Bible, the Bible, this is how the Bible equates spiritual maturity. It's not what we say we believe, because we all can sit there and say these things. The Bible equates spiritual maturity to how well we obey the Word of God and live in obedience to Him. So the question becomes, let's not just say what we believe, let's live it. How do we live 
what we believe. But I don't want us to, to miss this because I think sometimes there's this idea that we can make God a better God or make God gooder. I know that's not a word you teachers, but I'm going to use it, all right? There's this Bible teacher, Paige Britton Brown, and she says this about uh, the goodness of God. God will be not less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange his children. If he fluctuated one quark, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what that meant. I had to Google it. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. If he fluctuated one quark in his goodness, he would cease to be God. We're not making God a better God, but when we lay down our lives for others, we're not making God better. We're saying Jesus is better. And that is what it means to live as a Christian people. Not just say that Jesus, that Jesus is better, but to live as if he actually is, because he is. We sing about it, we put them on t-shirts, we make slogans about it, but do we live as if Jesus truly is better? Because if we believe that, it's going to affect everything that we do in all that we are. Verse 17. This we're going to kind of pick up steam a little bit this morning. Verse 17 says, If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? The word compassion here means stirred. And if you and I are not stirred, by the effect of sin in our world, both by the micro and the macro, how does God's love really reside in us? Christian love expresses itself in sacrificial giving to other believers in need. It's Christian's practical love that motivates us in helping others. It's that love for, it's that love for God that bursts the love for others. In verse 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. John declares that faith, which is only talk, is a false faith. Reminds me of DC Talk. All my 80s and 90s people are here like, yeah, right? There's a song, and it started off like this. The greatest form of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but deny him by their lifestyle. That is a fake faith. That is a fake love. John and James seem to be on the same page here. Faith that is just talk is fake. But what will we do with the truth of the crucified, resurrected Messiah who has called us to live in a crucified and resurrected way? John moves from loveless action to love applied or love in action, if we want to call it that. And then he moves into this idea of love assured. Verse 19 through 22 says this, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and we will reassure our hearts before him. Whoever our hearts can, how, who, whenever, can't get that word out, our hearts condemn us for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask for in him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. 19-22. Faithful living results in a confident heart. But there's a sharp contrast here between the unfaithful believer. I want you to think about this real quick. He says this, this, this phrase, and this phrase may be confusing to us at times, that God is greater than our hearts. 
it might seem a little weird, but I want you to think about how the enemy attacks our hearts. Like all of us, I want you to think about how the enemy attacks your heart. Uh, we know the enemy can use many different ways to attack us, but I'm going to give us a few, okay? Uh, guilt. We've all been there. Can you believe that you did that? And you can fill in whatever that is for you. Avoidance. Don't worry about confronting that. Fear. What will happen if someone knows that you think that? We've all been there. Shame. You are so vile for doing that. Where can you find right standing if that's where you're starting? But there is a right standing for us, and it doesn't start with the outside. It starts with the inside. It starts with the outside. I want you to think about the work of Jesus. As he works through the lives of the believers, God is greater than our hearts. And what I mean by that is this, one word, innocence. That's Jesus' response to us. When we think of guilt, Jesus offers us innocence. Romans 8 says this, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we think of the idea of avoiding sin, Jesus is the one who confronted our sin in our place. John the baptizer says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we think of fear, we think of the writer of Hebrews who reminds us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And because that, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and receive mercy and find grace in our greatest times of need. Boldness continued. Anyone who believes, and this is a huge thing for us, it should bring us encouragement. Anyone who believes in Christ, you will never, ever, ever, E-V-A, be put to shame. That's the promise of God for his people. And we rest assured in all that Christ has accomplished. Verses 23 and 24. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. And the way we know that he remains in us it's from the Spirit He has given us. This is the great commandment given to us in the Gospels. Come full circle. Because, the, because to love God is to believe in Christ. To love Christ is to love God. And to love God is to love our neighbors. And these are not two separate ideas of two different variants. This is one single undivided love because Christ we can love God. Because Christ we know what it looks like to love our brothers and sisters for the sake of God. And with everything going on, we know that, listen, if this is not us and our faith, our faith is loveless, our faith is fake. So the question to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do with the command that we have to live as agents of the kingdom of God, to live like Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, because he is? And it's out of that relationship, out of that love that I have for God, is birth the love we have for other people. He stirs it within us. He gives us compassion. And in turn, we partner with our brothers and sisters. And we walk with them in any way we can. And those outside of the faith, we still love them and walk with them 
and help them in any way we can, all while offering up the hope of a resurrected Messiah. In just a few minutes, we're going to have a time where you can respond to whatever it is that Jesus is doing in your life. And maybe for some of you, maybe you are dealing with guilt and shame or whatever it might be, and you're allowing these things to define you. I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus can set you free. When we come to Christ, he frees us from all of that. And he doesn't call us by our sin. He doesn't call us by our, sh- our guilt or our shame. He calls us friend. He calls us by name. We are identified by who Christ is. Maybe that's you this morning. You've been struggling. I invite you to come this morning to give your life to Christ. Or maybe you're, you're sitting here this morning like, listen, I struggle to love others, right? Guilty here, right? I struggle to love others. Maybe this morning, may you just come to the altar and, Lord, help me love other people, especially the ones that, Lord, annoy me, especially the ones that I have different views from that I just can't seem to get along. Lord, may I learn to be the hope of Jesus in their life. Or whatever it is that God is dealing with you this morning, may you respond during this time of invitation to whatever it is that God is doing in your life. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.